The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Merry Christmas. I have nice Christmas green for us today. Can you help me? Thank you. Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Genesis 15. Have you ever had experiences in your life where the Lord has, in His mercy, and I, I don't say that lightly, in His mercy, allowed you to be fully stripped of all self-reliance so that you recognize what we are supposed to be recognizing all the time that apart from him we can do nothing. Have you ever had that experience like Paul did in Asia, 2 Corinthians chapter 1? He says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to me in Asia. I had the sentence of death upon myself. I thought I was going to die. And it was so that it wasn't by chance, it wasn't by fate, it was by God. It was so that I would not trust in myself but in Him who raises the dead. I don't want you to be unaware. I've done this before. How many of you have been Christians for 20 years or more? Praise God. It had been roughly 20 years since the road to Damascus when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. He'd already written the churches in Thessalonica both of their letters. He'd already written Galatians. This is Paul man of God. He'd already written Romans and most likely 1 Corinthians and he said, I don't want you to be unaware that I almost had to die, not by chance, but because God put me in a situation where I was so pressed that I despaired of life itself so that I would not trust in myself but in Him. When we have been Christians for 20 or more years, we often get in our thinking that I'm past pressure. Why is this happening to me, God? Aren't I beyond this level of neediness that you would have to strip me so deeply that the pain would have to be so great that my helplessness would have to be so evident? And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, church. Yes, I was saved for 20 years, but God almost had to kill me in order that I would not trust in myself. Romans 14.23, anything that's not done from faith is sin. And I feel that weightiness in my own life right now. Because I feel how self-reliant I am. How prone to forget how much I need God. And God, who is passionate to preserve and display His glory, 
says, I want you to live by faith. Not trusting in yourself, but in me. That's what our passage is about today. And I pray that as we look at it, the Son of God, for whom Moses himself hoped, that he would be magnified in our presence and that we would find our hearts encouraged that our God is for us in Christ and that he is both believable and his promises are desirable. So we can trust with every confidence. Let's pray. God, I ask that you'd show up Magnify yourself in this hour just as you have done in the previous hour. I'm beyond myself this morning, Lord. So come. Prove yourself worth trusting in. Prove the worth of your promises today in the hearts of my brothers and sisters and perhaps even among us those who have not surrendered their lives to you prove yourself to them today as one worthy of their trust and may they surrender their hearts to you in Christ we ask in whom every promise is yes Amen. Genesis 15. Thousands of years fly by in the first 11 chapters of this book. At Genesis 12, the narrative slows drastically and the author all of a sudden begins to unpack for us with a greater detail than we've had at any other point. Here we get an entire chapter devoted to one man's life. Perhaps all of it happening in one single day. Genesis 15, three chapters after where we were last week, God had given Abraham glorious promises. Promise of kingdom, property and progeny, land and offspring. And in doing so, he was saying, I'm going to reverse the curse. From the woman's pain in childbirth will ultimately come, which itself is a sign of of problem, of, of curse, the result of sin, but from it would rise an entire line of God hoping believers the climax of whom would be a single male descendant who would crush evil and restore blessing in the world, reconciling man to God. I'm going to build a kingdom. You're going to have land. You're going to have offspring. And through you, Abraham, the world's problem is going to be fixed. All the world will be blessed. Now right after that, the promises of God are called into question. We've already learned of Sarah's barrenness. 
Now Abraham, in the midst of famine, heads off to Egypt. And he tells this half-truth, which is a half-lie, that Sarah is his sister, which is partially true. It's his half-sister, biologically. But the story is, there's tension here. Because Pharaoh takes Sarah into his own house, and what's going to happen? All the world's hope is hinging on this couple. This is more than a story of a man and his wife. This is our story. And whether or not the promises of God are going to reach you and me. And God overcomes that threat. The offspring promise once again called into question. Is there going to be the woman through whom the world's going to be blessed? Who's going to give rise to the offspring? Is she going to stick around or not? And then the next story is Abram and his nephew Lot. God has promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Go to the land that I'll show you. And then all of a sudden, he's on the top of the hill. All of Israel is, comes to a point Jerusalem is right at the top, and Abraham is right up in that region, and he gives Lot the opportunity to choose where he's going to live. Lot could have chosen the very land that God had promised Abraham. But instead, Lot looks down the valley that is still green, and it tells us it's before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Which suggests to me that the Dead Sea was not dead that the saltiness of the Dead Sea is directly connected to that fire judgment and when Lot's wife was turned to the pillar of salt, that all of that is is a lasting picture of God taking sin seriously. That it it happened afterwards because otherwise Lot wouldn't have looked down in the valley and said, oh, I want to live down there. But that's where Lot goes and then the whole story plays out. Lot settles in a place of deep sin. He goes to Sodom, and today we still use the language of sodomy, growing from that text. A whole bunch of men hammer on the door saying, we want to sleep with this visitor. We want Lot. And there's angels there, messengers of God. They defend Lot They destroy the city, and in the process, Lot's wife turns around and she gets destroyed as well. Lot gets carried off by five Mesopotamian kings. These are not kings of countries, they're kings of cities. And five of them had joined together and come down and overrun the whole region where Lot was living. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I just realized, is after the fact. We're not there yet. So Sodom and Gomorrah is chapter 18, I think. Um, Yes, 18. So before all that happens... Lot gets taken off, and Abram shows up. 300 men in his household. He's not a wimp, just like David wasn't a wimp. 
The story isn't to view Abram as a small guy. No, he has his own little city-state, even though he doesn't live in a city. He's a wandering nomad in this region of Canaan who has power and influence, and he runs after five city-state kings and overwhelms them with his 300 men, rescues Lot, and God shows up after this incident in chapter 15. That's where we will begin today. And says this, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After the great rescue, after Yahweh's trusting in God, after, uh, sorry, Abram's trusting in God, after Abram, he's going to be called Abraham, same guy, after Abram is blessed by Melchizedek, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, God, you can promise me great things, but I still don't have the one thing I long for. And it's not just a personal personal longing. Do you remember that promise you made me back in chapter 12? That one that moved me out of all that was ugly and hostile to you, caused me to go become this, uh, to leave and go into a foreign land for the sake of your kingdom? I don't have that offspring yet through whom the world is to be blessed. I don't have that offspring that's going to become the great nation. I've got a problem here, God. That's where he goes. Sorry. There we go. Here's my problem. Lord, what will you give me Because I continue childless. Any amount of wealth you provide is not going to answer the lasting problem. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I've I've chosen a manservant who will receive all of my inheritance. Eliezer. And then Abraham also said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And that, that little word, offspring, is the signal for us in a book that's been dominated by two family trees springing out of Genesis 3.15. The offspring of hope that is looking for that male deliverer and the offspring of the serpent that is characterized by what is hostile to God. Unbelief, lack of trust, rebellion. Cain is not my offspring. I need an offspring to replace Abel. Seth comes. God's given him to me. That offspring language is uh, pregnant in Genesis. And I don't have the offspring. So God responds, the Lord brought him outside. This man shall not be your heir, Your very own son shall be your heir. Someone from your own loins, your own biology. And 
And he brought him outside. He said, look up to heaven. Number the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteousness. I want us to consider the nature of justifying faith from this text. This is the text in Romans 4 that Paul goes back to and he says, Believers, you want to know how you're supposed to live? By faith and not by works? By relying on God rather than on self-reliant effort? You want to understand what that is? Go back to Abraham. Go back to this text. Abram believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. Aha! That's, that's it. Look to him. So I want us to look to him today and try to understand what the significance of this justifying faith is. That we might be able to get our hands around it because Paul says without it, we sin. The writer of the Hebrews says without it, we cannot please God. The nature of justifying faith, here it is. It has two aspects. The first one is this, as I see it in the text. Faith is trusting God to do in and through us what we know already cannot be accomplished on our own. Faith is trusting God to do for us, in and through us, what we cannot do on our own. That takes a conscious recognition of our own need for dependence. Why do I see that in the text? First of all, what was Abram believing in? Verse 6, it says, Abram believed. What was the object of Abram's faith? Anybody? Verse 6. Okay, we've got God's promise over here, and then we've got the God who made the promise. The text says, Abram believed Yahweh. So I tell Fred, tomorrow I'll show up to your place and you can show me your paintings. I'll be there at 12 o'clock. If you don't know, Fred is an amazing artist. Find his website. It is outrageously amazing, beautiful. If you've ever been to Lake Superior and seen the pebbles in the ground, he's able to make it, put it into paint and make it look real. And I would love to go to his studio. Better yet, bring money. That's right, I was just going to say that. I was going to say it's Christmas time and it would, they would look great on your wall. Okay, so I tell Fred, I'm going to show up at your house tomorrow. And... Then Brian says, Fred, I've been getting to know Jason this semester. <laughs> he says he's going to show up tomorrow. Do you believe Jason? Fred says, I believe Jason. To say that Fred believes me is more than saying, 
he just trusts in me as a person, he's actually trusting something that's directly related to a promise. That to believe in the person is to believe what that person has spoken. So what has God spoken here? What stands behind the person of Yahweh that Abram is believing in? What's at stake that Abraham is having to trust? Anybody? Just look at the text. What do you, what, what's at stake in this text? What's he having to believe the Lord for? An heir and offspring. Now, let's take a step back further. Why is the promise of an heir, what what makes it clear in the text that trust is demanded for such a promise? Pardon? Their age, so the text has already been clear um, that in chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah was barren, she had no child. And not only is she, does she have no child, we know that they're very old. So the time of childbearing is actually past for Sarah, and that's going to play a part in this whole story. Sarah's barrenness is very evident, and so... It raises the stakes on the promise. This is the kind of thing that when it happens, if it happens, is not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to say that was nature. No, God is working in this story to help us, the reader, recognize what is actually ultimately true all the time. God upholds all things by the word of his power. That means if God stops speaking, you stop breathing. That's how it is 24-7 all the time. This text is trying to speak to people who don't realize what is real all the time. If God stops upholding our world, it won't continue. Period. I woke up this morning, I breathed, at 5.30, conscious, only because God let it happen. He didn't owe me life this morning. He doesn't owe it to you this afternoon. Life is a gift, upheld and maintained simply from the throne of the one who upholds all things from beginning to end. And this story is designed to help us get our hands around how big this God is and how needy we are. What Abraham was believing in was, according to man, naturally impossible. The doctors have been stumped, unable to help Caleb. Two teachers show up in the living room of their house, lay hands on him and pray. Overnight, he's 80% better. The doctors don't explain those things. It's the power of our God. 
Turn with me to chapter 18. The story gets unpacked. You know how it works. The three men show up in Abram's presence. Sarah is tucked away making a niblet in the tent. So, this is what we read in verse 10. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you, Abram, about this time, Abraham, about this time next year. And you know what? Sarah, she's now been renamed, so is Abraham in chapter 17. Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. We're not going through Hagar, we're going through Sarah. Now, Sarah was listening. Notice what it says. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. Jenny, a year from now you will bear a son. And Jenny freaks. And Sarah's at least 30 years older than her. Well, right around there anyway. I'm guessing. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So what does Sarah do? (laughs) Yeah, that's a funny one. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for 90 years. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for God? This is the same word that we find in a text we're going to see a little bit later in the class. His name shall be called Counselor of Wonder. The Wonderful Counselor. Is anything too wonderful, too difficult, too miraculous? How desperate do you feel this morning? For God to show up into your own situation. There is nothing too big for our God. And that shapes the context for understanding when Paul was looking back and saying, look at Abraham to understand what I mean by faith. Faith is trusting God to do in and through me what I know full well I can't do on my own. Not just in trying to have children, though in trying to have children. In seeing the brokenness of my wounded heart repaired, God can do it. In drawing back my son who's been rebellious, drawing him back to to the Lord, God can do it. He's the only one who can do it. In supplying that needed job, in reconciling that broken marriage, God is the only one. In helping you beat the sin that you just can't beat, the only one who can shape new desires in your soul for things that are pure rather than ugly, God is the only one and He is able. Abram believed God. And what he was trusting in was beyond him. And that's the nature of faith. And without faith, you cannot please God. Because it's not about 
me doing. It's about me trusting. Coming to God and believing that He exists. That there is a God and I'm not it. But if there is a God, He upholds all things. And even though this world is so much out of control, and even though this world is so big and I can't get my hands around it, for me it's like shepherding the wind. I can't grab it. We have a God who has been the shepherd of all things from the beginning of time. Fear Him. Trust Him. Let the reality of the brokenness of this world, the darkness of your own soul, the helplessness of your own ineptitude, let it push you to where God wants you all the time. I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to me in Asia. I despaired of life and self so that I would not trust in myself, but on God. Trusting God to do for us what we cannot do on our own. Biblical faith. Justifying faith. But that's not it. If that was it, we would miss something massive. We would miss the whole context of understanding how it is that God could show up in Abraham's life at all and make such amazing promises through a sinful, imperfect man. Before I jump there, let me read this text. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes. There's the trusting God to do for me what I know I can't do. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith. It's that man's faith that's counted as righteousness. And the faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies. In hope, hear that, in hope, faith finds its object in the promises of God. It's those promises that create hope. And what we hope for tomorrow will change the kind of person we are today. Let me say that again. What we hope for tomorrow changes who we are today. If you believe God will show up, you'll be willing to step out in ways you've never been willing before because you have hope and what you hope for tomorrow will change who you are. In hope, he believed against hope. It didn't make sense. Nothing in the world said this should go this way. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. How much do you believe when God says, I will be enough, I will satisfy your soul, I will meet your needs? How much do you really believe it? Do you have the faith that doesn't waver 
as tough as life gets. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's what faith does. It takes the spotlight off of us and puts it all on him. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the opportunity to show that God is great in our lives. When the world is saying, why are you going the route you're going? Because I believe. Because I believe there's more to this world than the world itself is offering. Because I believe that God's way is best. Because I believe that He will Give me more, deeper, lasting satisfaction than what the internet can provide, to what this relationship can bring, to what this pursuit of prestige, position can give me. Here's the second part of justifying faith that I see in this text. Justifying faith is trusting God to bring specifically, not just any promise to fulfillment, it's specifically trusting God to bring the promised offspring through whom, through whom evil will be demolished, the curse of sin reversed, and lasting life with God restored. Remember Genesis 1 didn't just call people to image God on a global scale. In your workplace, out on the street, in your home, display me as great. It couched it in a blessing. That means that God is the one who alone can fulfill this whole process. I can't live for him. I can't be what he's called me to be in the context of kingdom growth apart from him. But the only way that God is justified to bring such grace into my life is because of the offspring of the woman that he promised to overcome, the evil one. So when Abram in chapter 15 says... God, what can you give me? I don't even have an heir. I have no offspring. I think we're supposed to have signals going off in our mind that recall for us the offspring promise. That is, Abram's called to be the one through whom the world is blessed, and if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. And God takes him outside and says, Look at the stars. It's one of the joys that we long for as a family every summer when we go up to the Boundary Waters. We've done it several times, going out, keeping the kids up late, going out in our canoe at night after the sun has gone down and letting our kids experience real darkness and see real stars, not shaded by the city lights. And to just see the sky loaded Every one of those stars, Abraham, is a pointer 
Oh yes, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. But all of that multitude of nations, all the offspring that will be identified with you, that will be part of the line of promise rather than the line of curse and rejection, all of that is merely a pointer of hope. So in 15.5 it says, Look up toward heaven, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Their offspring is plural. But when Abram was talking about it, he said, I don't even have an offspring. You've given me no offspring. Oh yes, I have an heir. It's Eliezer, but I'm looking for one. And this sets the background for why the death of Isaac is going to be so significant. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, that the curse will be overcome, that the world will be blessed. All of the offspring are merely pointers to the one offspring. Now look at how the rest of the Bible builds on this. Last week we saw how Jesus is, even in Genesis, in Genesis it anticipates the single male offspring that by the end of the book we're told is going to rise up and be a king through the line of Judah. But then as we move that through the rest of the Pentateuch, we read other things. Look at the sky. All the stars are mere pointers to my faithfulness in your life. Every star you see, Abraham, is a reminder. I will do it. And then we come to the book of Numbers. I see him. Oh, but not now. He's not here yet. I behold him, but not near a star. Not many, no one. You've been living in the night. The sky is full of stars. But there is one, one star that will rise. The light will dawn. All the rest of the sky will grow dim. All the stars you will no longer see. They'll be paled by the light of the one. Here it is. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then with imagery of Genesis 3.15, of the skull-crushing seed, he will crush the forehead of Moab, the enemy, and break down all the sons of Sheth, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. No enemy will stand when this star rises. I need an offspring, God. The world's blessing is at stake. When will he come? Look at the stars, Abraham. You can count on it. Your offspring is going to be that numerous. All of them pointers to the one. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Why? For us... To us a child is born. To us a son is given. Who? The government will be on his shoulder. His name? Wonderful Counselor. The one who speaks and miracles happen. Mighty God. There's some identity between this coming offspring and God Himself. In fact, when people look at Him... 
they will think of God. Through him, God is reigning. God is displaying his might. God is showing his victory over sin. Through this one, everlasting Father, perfect in discipline, perfect in care, Prince of Peace. Sovereign rest of Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, the seventh-day Sabbath rest, realize now on a universal scale, peace has come again in your heart. Do you believe the promises? Can you hold fast to them? Not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, making your request known to God so that the peace that has been secured for us in Christ might guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. He's arrived, but far too many love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come out into the light because it will display their neediness. And God's saying, it's in that very spot of the display of your own neediness and of the magnification of Jesus' worth that you'll find help. But until you're willing to say, I'm a sinner and I've got to get out of this place, until you're willing to let the light shine on you, you're still under the curse. I, Jesus said, am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They'll reign forever and ever. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of Jesse. I am the bright and morning star. Justifying faith is trusting God to do for us what we cannot do in ourselves. Ultimately, in and through the promised deliverer, they're intimately linked. Paul goes back to this text, says this is what Christian faith is about. Not just recognizing our ultimate need It's affirming that the source is bound up in God's promise of the Deliverer. Abraham got it. He got it. Not perfectly, but truly. And in doing so, he let a spotlight be taken off of himself and God was displayed as awesome, as the miracle worker. Let him be displayed that way in your life today. Whatever your problem, as deep and as troubling as it may be, find a promise that you can latch on to, that you know is yours only because of Christ. Every promise is yes in Jesus, and then hold on to it and don't let it go. God will be made much of, and he will prove himself trustworthy. This chapter is not over. In fact, it it gets more intense and glorious. Verse 7, 
God makes another proclamation. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the causer of all things. I'm the one who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Does that sound like anything to anyone? Anything that you know of? I am the Lord who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt? Yeah. The, the, phrase, the, the wording is almost identical, except there's a replacement. And I think for the hearers who would have heard the Ten Commandments proclaimed on Mount Sinai, they would have had a connection. Keep that in mind. I'm that God. The one who proved himself desirable and believable. I'm that one who showed up in Mesopotamia. Stephen's going to call me the God of glory. Remember me, Abraham? I'm that God. And Abraham says, God, I've got another question. It's not related to the offspring this time, it's related to the land. How will I really know? Both of these will take miracles, God. Okay, you've made me this promise about the offspring. You said, look up at the sky. Your very word is spoken. I want to believe it. I have believed it. What about the land, God? That takes just as much of a miracle. And God says, it's so weird. Bring me a heifer. What's up with that? Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Don't only bring them to me. I want you to cut them in half and make a, uh, two piles here. One on this side, one on his, this side. The two halves, like this. An aisle. I want an aisle, a clear aisle. And on each side of the aisle is these animal parts. The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. God's going to display to Abram something beautiful in this sleep. So he's going to be sleeping, but he's going to see what happens in some way. It's the same word used of Adam when God put him into his sleep and made Eve. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, here's the promise, your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. What is that talking about? Egypt? Yeah, the promise is right here. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised Israel. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there was sin that still needed to be accomplished among the Amorites before God's patience would be over, and then their judgment day would come. But the Amorites are one of the people groups that are in Canaan, where Abram is living right now. I'm going to give you the land, Abraham. Oh, wait, I'm going to give it to your offspring four generations from now. Now, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Two piles of pieces, an aisle down the middle. Abram is sleeping. And now you get this smoking, fiery pot that 
in the vision of some sort, moves down between these pieces. And this is the explanation by the narrator. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Something about going through these pieces, a covenant is being made. A relationship is being formalized between Abram and God. To your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that was enough. That answered Abram's problem. How will I know? What would a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch say to a bunch of Israelites who already have been, had an echo of something they've already experienced? I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The same God is the one who brought Abram out of Mesopotamia. Any idea? When we read this, what are we supposed to be thinking? What would Israel have been thinking? We know it's not a picture of Abram. He's sleeping. So what is this smoking fire pot stuff? Anybody? What does it recall for you if you were an Israelite wilderness wanderer? Fire, fiery cloud. So the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. It at least has that expression of it the smoke and the fire, the darkness, all that's image, direct language used in Mount Sinai when God's presence manifests itself and then that presence lifted up and led Israel further through the wilderness. So I think we're supposed to see we've got Abram sleeping, animals pieced, and God going between the parts. And we're supposed to say What in the world, how does God make a covenant by doing that? This is the only other place in the Bible where we are given any hint of what's going on. It's in the book of Jeremiah. It doesn't deal with this exact covenant, but the imagery is there. And it's not God who goes through the parts. It's the people of Israel who went through the parts. Let's see it. And the men who transgressed my covenant, Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20, the men who transgressed my covenant, so they're covenant breakers, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. So they made promises to God in a solemn relationship. And they didn't keep what they promised. That's parallel to our passage. There's promises being made. Okay, here we go. They didn't keep the terms of the covenant that they had made before me, This group that has been rebellious, I will make them, I will make them, the rebels who've not kept their word, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between the parts. The calf's been ripped apart and is now dead. They walked between the parts making an oath and they have not fulfilled their vow. And therefore God is saying, in accordance with the terms that were established in the beginning, I'm going to make you like the animals because you failed to keep your part of the bargain. 
the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. I'll give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth. That's as much as we're given. Outside the Bible, we're given more. There's a number of examples outside the Bible where kings are coming together making Solomon ceremonies just like this. Usually it's the lower member, the vassal, who's forced to go between the cut pieces. But we have one example of the king, the the suzerain, who takes a goat by the head, he slits its throat and says, if I fail to give you what I've promised, may it be done to me. Which is, it's the same kind of imagery that we have right here. So somebody help me. Abram's struggling to believe the promise of God and God gives him this formal, image-filled ceremony. What is God declaring in the ceremony? If indeed it's God who goes between the pieces. No, keep, work it. So, right, so if, if my word fails, what? May this happen to me. May I die. May I stop existing. Is it possible for God to not exist? And on that basis, you can be that sure that God's going to be faithful to his promise. Whoa, God, you're putting yourself on that much of a line? I trust you. I trust you. And if indeed you'll give, remember, the goal of the kingdom, Israel as a kingdom, was not Israel itself. God made Israel for the sake of the world, for the sake of you and me. So bound up in this one promise is all the rest of the promises. And God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. People swear by something greater than themselves and on all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that the promise linked up with the oath. We have two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a God who speaks and always honors what He says. You might feel your situation is too big. That's the kind of situation God likes to prove Himself faithful. In this season where real hope is needed to be declared, trust in the promises of God. Believe a God who has proven himself in the past and promises to prove himself in your present. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you are that you have been and that you are and you forever will be truthful. You have given us your promises so that through them we might partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. Help us to not doubt, 
Make your promises big in our eyes. Let us rely on what has been called future grace. We don't deserve you to show up, but you promise that you will through Jesus. You're for us. Help us remind our struggling souls. Help us persevere in godliness because we believe your way is best. Help us not grow weary in well-doing. Help us, we ask. Help us create faith in our hearts. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.